This interview was recorded on April 16th, 2021. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Yana Baruta. Based in New York City, Yana leads events and experiential marketing at HashiCorp, and she is a co-creator of EpicConf, a virtual event series for marketers and founders. You can follow her on Twitter at Yana Baruta, and check out her website at yanabaruta.com, and read her blog at yanabaruta.medium.com. Along with her <laughs> colleague, Yu Pisgar, Yana is co-author of the book, Digital First Events, Your Step-by-Step Guide to Building Engaging Community Experiences. In the book, Yana and Yu describe their journey journey in 2020 from the shock of shutdowns in March, pivoting from organizing large-scale physical in-person events to creating exclusively digital events, and working their way to seeing a brighter future for organizing events by the end of the year. In this interview, we're going to talk about Yana's background and career, her professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience writing her book. So thank you, Yana, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and your path to a career in organizing events and experiential marketing. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So I grew up in California, um, but my family's also from Czech Republic. So I split my time between uh, Czech Republic, uh, growing up in a little small town called Sleen, and then growing up uh, in in Northern California. Um, I, I I went to college and graduated college in 2008 during the worst part of the recession. It's so interesting because, you know, millennials, we've been through now, I think four recessions, right? There was one in like 89, then you had like the dot-com bust in 2000, the the financial, uh, the uh, mortgage crisis in 2008, and then now last year, right? So it was interesting to graduate in 2008 and you're like, I studied marketing and finance and what I have all this college debt and what am I supposed to do? Um, and I was living in Colorado at the time and I just could not find a job. Right. And, and I think so many people were in that situation. So I ended up moving home for a bit and I ended up getting my first job working for a technology startup. Um, I was just doing customer support, just kind of like low level work, but it was really kind of exposure into working in tech, working for like fast paced technology companies. Um, and so that's kind of how I got my, my start in my career. Right. So I've kind of, I did sales, I did customer support, but I was always like, what am I good at? Right. So I always knew, um, I really loved people. I was really organized. Um, and you're like, well, how do you kind of create a, a career from that? And so that's where I found kind of like community building, um, event management, uh, design and experiences. Um, but yeah, I've done five small scale startups. I'm, um, specializing with like working with developers and creating community for like developer communities. Um, and that's, you know, I've, I've known about lean pub for years, right. Cause that's everyone, you know, I was worked in like the Ruby on rails space. Um, but now I've been at HashiCorp for the last six years hired again when we were 10 people, we're now 1400 employees, hundreds of thousands of members in our community. Um, but yeah, and here I am now. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. It's it's so interesting to hear um, the way you describe, you know, that experience of growing up through multiple recessions. In, in particular, you know, the I've interviewed a lot of people who sort of went through the um, dot com bust in the yeah. 2000s um, at, when they were like kind of at the beginning of their career or mid career or something like that. But for for a lot of millennials, they would have been you know still still teenagers at that time. Um, and so you know to start out your sort of search for, you know, education and, and, and a career in the midst of, of troubling times like that uh, yeah. is really difficult. And then to be just getting going, uh, <laughs> you know, around 2008 or so, and for that crash to come. And I, you know, I, um, at that time I was working in investment banking in London and um, you know, we saw it coming mm. along, like not, no one, no one really knew how devastating it was going to be, but like, you could see the signs yeah. Earlier. Yeah. And there were a lot of people who were at like, you know, well along in their careers who were really dramatically affected by by that moment as well. Um, and then and, and then to be precisely in the one of the sectors that would be most heavily impacted by it of organizing events must have been um, yeah. devastating. Well, it's interesting, right? Growing up, you know, my, my parents escaped communism, right? Growing up with, you know, parents that didn't speak English, right? When they came here, had multiple jobs and and so my parents really early on taught like me to be like resilient and to understand that life is really like, ebbs and flows. Um, and sometimes we're feasting, sometimes it's famine. And so for me, kind of seeing my parents kind of struggle or build their careers or, or live their lives um, really helped me. So like last year was another great example. Um, you know, I watched the events industry completely get destroyed, right? It's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, 
you know, my team and I, like our whole job at HashiCorp right now is to build large scale in-person conferences. And we couldn't do that anymore. And I was like, well, if, if my team and I can't do our jobs, right? Like what value do we bring HashiCorp, right? And so I think it was, oh my gosh, thinking back, like, you know, how, how tough March was and, and, and we're still in it, right? Like you can't process the trauma until it's over, right? It's, it's still going. So for me, right, in, in March, I really had to be like, okay, I, I'm, depre- I, I'm definitely feeling on the emotions. I was definitely depressed, right? You, you watched kind of like, I, I live in Manhattan and actually I wrote a blog post about it where I was like, the soundtrack of the city changed, right? The city that is so full of energy and buzzing and, and taxis honking and music and people. It was just eerie. It was really eerie and quiet. Um, and you just heard ambulances and then helicopters. And, and so it's like, I used saw like right outside my window, I saw the city change. And then I also, all of a sudden, like, we had events planned for four years, right? We had roadmaps, budgets, uh, attendee growth plans that all just kind of blew, like had to be thrown out the window. And so I, I had to like, I had to sit with that, right? I had to sit with the loss of kind of these programs and these things I had built. And then I was like, okay, I could either sit here and, and kind of mourn the loss of something or like, how do I kind of push forward, right? How do I kind of help my, my team pivot? How do I kind of save our jobs, right? It was, so it was a lot of pressure um, that like I had to figure out how to navigate. Yeah, um, uh, one of the experiences a lot of people, a lot of people in a lot of different um, professions and industries have had throughout this is, you know, what is the essence of what I do really, Yeah. right? And um, there's a lot of what I kind of sar- somewhat sarcastically call it, I'm not talking about events, by the way, like work theater. Um, you yeah. Know, like uh, somehow being proud of how many hours you commute, you know, because it, it implies you're a harder worker or something like that. <laughs> you know, um, I've seen a lot of things where people are like, you know, I really miss X, Y, Z and all the things that have nothing to do with work. And then some way of kind of backing out some justification of them. Like I really love the water cooler moments. And it's like my, my personal experience of that in office life was like, I hated all that stuff. I never wanted to have anything to do with any of it. And it's like, just let me do my, let me do my work. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of people have had to do a lot of really hard thinking and you guys, you know, I mean, you, you, as you said, you know, some, the, this was something I was like saying, before we started the interview that like I didn't understand at all so naive about big event planning is that it doesn't happen on a few months timeline it happens on a few years timeline and so you guys had you know um, nurtured the growth of multiple projects looking out over the course of years. And this is like down to like the designing of the details in virtual environments, you know, where the seating's going to be, where this yeah. banner's going to be, what the experience, like probably closing your eyes and thinking through what's the experience from like walking in the door. What's the first thing I'm going to see on the way in? What's the last thing I'm going to see on the way out? And you just had to let all that go. Yeah. It, it, it was really hard, but I, um, but I, now looking back, right, like the things I learned um, from like how to navigate, uh, how to manage in time of crisis, right? So not only did we have to unwind all of the work we had done, right? So that means um, negotiating with vendors, right? Like trying to negotiate down how much we owe, um, canceling plans, canceling contracts. Um, and then while that kind of having to do a really hard pivot, Right. So my, my team, like I have a very set team, right. Where everyone's focused on things. So it's like, you now have to unwind. You have to kind of re do a hard pivot, refocus your team. And then while learning how to build new programs from scratch. So, so, you know, you're like, okay, I feel like I just got an MBA last year. Like, um, right. And I, and so, so trying to kind of also make sure I save our jobs, right. Make sure that we kind of learn, how do we continue bringing the company and our community value, right? How do we build new programs? Um, and then also supporting my team as well, right? Like, you know, this, uh, someone on my team has, has children, right? And, and another, you know, and, and another person is dealing with a sick mom um, and, and that, like, and we're all distributed, right? My team, uh, some of my team is in Amsterdam, DC and, and Portland, right? So it's like, okay, how can I support my team navigate through this while I'm also kind of like, you know, dealing with my own emotions? And then how do I kind of reshift and, and get us to build something from, uh, from scratch again? 
And so was you actually, that's I'm really curious about because amongst the many challenges you've already set, you set out that you had to face all of a sudden, um, was your team already distributed? Were you, or were you, were you working from home? Yeah, that was actually the really nice thing. Um, so HashiCorp's been uh, remote first from the very beginning. Uh, so we've always been a distributed company. And so that actually was kind of the nice thing for us where um, we already had processes in place for how we communicate, how we do project management, the tools we have in place that enable us to work effectively uh, in a remote environment. So that was the one thing that didn't have to change. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually, that's really fascinating. Uh, LeanPub is is distributed as well. Yeah. Um, and um, it's it's actually been one of the, one of the interesting things to watch is people who um, didn't, didn't know the stage that technology and was at and were kind of, I guess, kind of like, I don't know, work, place theory was at with respect to remote work. A lot of people learned, hey, you know, video calls work now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that could just be an email. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I've got a friend who's a, who's a surgeon and it's all of a sudden, you know, a lot of, he's like, you know, he, he, he experienced that thing that you read about probably of like, you know, 10 years of progress in 10 months kind of thing. Yeah. Um, another friend of mine is a lawyer, you know, and like now he's, he doesn't go to the office anymore, you know? Um, and it's because they learned his, his industry kind of learned that they didn't need to be doing a lot of things the way they were doing them. And actually just before we go on though, um, could you talk just so people get us who don't, who haven't heard of HashiCorp might, uh, might not know yeah. what it does. So if you could just explain a little bit about what the company does so people understand the, the context of the of the kinds of events that you're organizing yeah so um hashicorp we build so we have six six open source projects um so we started in open source and then we have like four enterprise uh versions of our products uh but we build like infrastructure and security tools so a lot of like sys admins and developers use us and we've had millions of downloads of all of our tools um and so we have a really large and engaged community and when you say infrastructure and security, you're not talking about like pipes and guys with, with, uh, <laughs> I'm talking batons, about the cloud. Like I'm talking right. about yeah. servers yeah. in the cloud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, well, that's, that's really relevant because the, the, um, the events and, and community, you know, engagement that you, that you were organizing, yeah. um, is for, uh, developers, um, software yes. developers and people like that. Uh, and I actually, now I'm just putting together how important these events would be if the whole team's <laughs> been distributed from the very beginning. I didn't, I didn't know that. And so basically the, the stuff that you, a lot of the things that you do is the kind of glue that keeps this globally distributed team together, but also yeah. like helps them grow and thrive. And, and my so, team's also responsible for our employee summit, right? So we also, so it's like, not only are we helping kind of build and grow the HashiCorp community, we also help build and grow like the employee, right, community. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, so uh, we, every year, right, we do like our employee summit. So we actually bring, so even though we're distributed once a year, we bring all of our employees together for a okay. couple of days. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And okay, so, I see. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to this year figure out how to do that virtually, right? Because like, the amount of connections that like employees make, the amount of like planning and, and roadmap work that they do, you know, when they come together for those couple of days. So that, that was another thing that's like, oh, now that it has to happen virtually. So you're like, how do you build connections amongst employees, but in a virtual setting? And one thing um, I, I gather too from the research that I did for this interview is that a lot of a lot of what you're doing by organizing these events is providing people with the opportunity to grow in their careers, right? By giving them sort of step-by-step path to maybe becoming a keynote speaker themselves someday or something like that, right? Yeah. And, and so part of part of what you're doing is helping people, you know, expand their skill sets and and learn how to learn how to help other people and you know help them grow too. And so you have that's to face that essence. challenge. Yeah, that's the essence of community building, right? And it's so funny because I, I advise companies, and people are like, "Oh, I really need leads and leads," and I'm like, "But that's not what community building is, right? It's it's about giving back. It's about connecting people. It's about supporting people. It's about you know." giving them opportunities to speak or to write a blog post or to get more exposure um, or to, you know, find a new job or to meet a co-founder. Right. So like, there's just, there's a reason the events industry is worth what it is. Right. And this is actually developer communities, especially love going to conferences. Um, right. Like the, the amount of connections that you make and it, it's just, yeah, it's invaluable. Yeah, there's a, especially when you're talking about very sort of technical, ex, ex sort of specialist things. The kind of back and forth that can go on in a in a room of people is something that would be very difficult to recreate. Virtually. And that's actually probably my favorite part about working with developer communities, especially in the open source, right? And I mean, this is this is why this actually inspired me to even write a book of like 
it's like, I have found that this community, it's all about supporting each other, right? This is why people contribute to open source projects for free, right? This is why, you know, people write, write books uh, they're publishing on LeanPub. Um, and this is why people go to conferences, want to speak at conferences. It's all about kind of knowledge sharing and, and supporting each other and, and, and teaching each other. One thing I've uh, heard you talk about in a couple of podcasts, interviews, um, is uh, ROIs on events. You just mentioned the sort of like, you know, the, the worth the worth of the, the events business. And sometimes there, there's a certain kind of person, maybe with a different kind of MBA, who, uh, you know, always ask, what's the ROI? As though that, that, that's, that's a serious question. <laughs> um, I think I'm probably sympathetic to your, to your view on, on how important ROIs are for evaluating the worth of events. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit, a bit about that. Yeah, I have so many thoughts. So I, I've been really lucky at HashiCorp where the founders have always deeply believed in, I mean, they started an open source, right? Like uh, Mitchell, one of our founders, um, you know, open sourced uh, a project called Vagrant, right? And like, hmm. he did it for free, right? He did it to help the community. So from very early on in the way even HashiCorp got started was them just, you know, speaking and being engaged with the community and going to events and sponsoring events. So I've been really lucky that at least HashiCorp leadership understands the value of community building. And so I don't have to, okay, I organized this one meetup or we did this one conference or we did this one web webinar and right away, here's the ROI, right? It's community building is a, a set of programs and initiatives, right? That, that, you, that you put in place, but it's, it's a long game, right? I still think back to when we did our first HashiComp in 2015, um, you know, it was just 300 people in Portland, but the people that spoke or attended, you know, what is it, six years later, they're uh, some of our largest customers, uh, their employees, <laughs> their open source contributors, their speakers. And so you're like, how do I go back to that first HashiConf and all of that ROI, figure out the ROI of that and, and attribute it. So I think sometimes people miss the, the, that it's also kind of this long game, right? That you're, that the, the things you're launching and the things you're doing uh, will take years, right. To have an effect. Yeah. Which I guess, points up even more the kind of shock of of last March, right? Where you'd been thinking about long-term things for a long time already and we're looking way out into the future and then suddenly had to just completely change change the it's my nature life. of yeah. the long game you were playing. Um, yeah, it's, I knew four years, right? Four years. I, I knew pretty much week by week where I was going to be for like the next couple of years, right? We had venues booked, we had plans um, and all of that just got scrapped and and it's not only work-wise, but also personally. Like, I, I, I hope everyone learned something about themselves last year, right? I think for me, pre-pandemic, my word for me would be oversubscribed, right? Where I was just, you know, <laughs> I, I keep sticking to that. I really love that word where I, I just, I was so, we were traveling. I was always on the road. Uh, or then when I would come back to New York, right? I would, I would go to dinners with friends or I just, you know, I was always, so busy, right? I really love live music. And then it, it's weird where all of the things that kind of fulfilled you, you could no longer do. So all of a sudden, right? Um, gosh, uh, March and April, right, were so brutal because it's like, I had to do a hard pivot. I had to learn how to navigate my team through crisis while I was also having to kind of relearn into this and kind of settle into what this new world was, right? And I'm like, what are the things that make me happy? And I had to kind of really go inward and then sit with that for a long time of, and, and then find, I'm like, oh, wow, I actually am. I'm okay being at home. Right. I'm like, I really love to read and I, and I, I love to like do yoga and, and I'm, I'm now just, and it, it made me more intentional, right? Like I now like reach out to friends and, and I, I check in with my family and I have these kind of standing weekly calls with like friend groups. So it was so hard in some ways, but I also like learned so much and kind of just reshifted how I work. And I don't think I would have had the mental capacity to write a book. Like, right. When you're oversubscribed, um, how do you then have time for like creative projects? Right. Like I, I launched this uh, series called Epic Conf with some friends. And then, you know, I ended up writing a book that I never thought I, I would have or, or could have. 
Yeah, thank you much for, very much for sharing that. It's interesting. Just yesterday, I was reading uh, some something in the sort of book publishing industry news about how some publishers are saying, everybody stop with the submissions because everybody's every so many more people have had so much more time to write books that that like even compared to normal times, it's overwhelming publishers. But um, that actually gives gives a great opportunity to um, move on to the next segment, which uh, we introduced in the podcast over a year ago now about another another long game, which is how has the pandemic affected life around you? Um, so so I was wondering, you live in Manhattan, you mentioned, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the journey has been like in your neighborhood. I literally had to mute myself for a second as an ambulance uh, uh, drove by. Um, it, it's hard, right? I live in, in the center of Manhattan in a neighborhood called like the Lower East Side. And it, it's hard, right? It's um, The city was so lively and so many tourists and people and, you know, it's just now starting to come back, but a lot of the businesses went, uh, went under, right. Just on my street alone, every, every, every storefront is, has a for rent sign, right. Or kind of walking around, um, in the early pandemic, like when the black lives matter protests were happening, like that was incredible to experience, right. To be a part of those marches. Um, but it was also really scary, right. Cause then at nighttime there would, I would just see like 50 cop cars drive by with sirens and you're like i am so afraid for the people that are out right now or there was just a constant noise of helicopters so it's so all of a sudden the city right that like had just different energy and, and the soundtrack changed and it was just like sirens whether it was ambulances or um or helicopters or cop cars and and you're like it, it was a lot it was a lot to experience and, and um i don't think i fully understand kind of like the effect it, it's had on me yet. And are those um, shops around you with the for rent signs, are those for rent signs still out there now? Yeah. Yeah. You're later and you're like, and you're just so like, what are all these people doing for work? Right. Like it's it just the weight of everything. You really, it, yeah. It, just the weight of all of it. You're like, how, how do I help? How do I contribute? How do I support my community? Right. How do I, uh, it's also interesting. Right? Cause there's a moment where I was like, should I move back home? Right. So my, my family lives in California and, you know, at the start of the pandemic, um, we just didn't know. Right. We didn't know how the virus, like how it spread. We didn't know if we can get on airplanes. Um, I was like, what if something happens to my family? Right. Like, how do I get to them? It's so funny. My my dad was like, my dad's amazing. He's like, Yana, I will drive and pick you up. <laughs> right. <laughs> like driving across the United States. But he's like, if you need, I will drive and pick you up. And I was like, that is love right there. Um, so for a moment, I was like, OK, well, I should maybe move home. But then I was like, but New York is my home. And I want to, and that's why I actually tried to stay here through it all. Cause I'm like, I'm still like supporting the businesses. I'm still trying to shop at the businesses. And now I want to be a part of like helping the city rebuild. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, um, I really like the way you put that, you know, the sort of uncertainty um, that, that we're still living with, right. You know, what are these people, what, what are, what are people doing for work? And it's, yeah, we could talk about this forever probably, but you know, the, it is a really, it is such a strange time in so many ways um, with Black Lives Matter uh, and things like that. Um, uh, I mean, life is always a bit of a knife edge in the States, uh, but it's been, it's been that way. I mean, I'm, you know, just watching from afar, you know, times 10 over the last year for a lot of different people. And, um, you know, particularly people who aren't privileged enough to have, you know, work, work remote jobs and things like that. It's very difficult. And it's, it's just so strange to see, you know, the stock market higher than it's ever been, uh, yeah. you know, at the same time as what you see around you is, you know, everything going to hell, uh, and yeah. you know, what, what sense to make of that, um, the weight of all of that's really, so you're like, you know, even uh, I, I used a lot of the vendors for years, right? I really love building relationships and I watched some of the vendors uh, that I use go out of business, right? People that I'd been using since 2015, 2016. Um, and like we canceled our contract, everyone else canceled their contracts. So it's like the weight of all of that. You're like, how do I continue pushing forward when you're like the weight of everything around you uh, is a lot. Yeah, and that actually gives us a chance to segue back into the sort of main main uh, yeah. main conversation about about your book and event planning and things like that. So vendors, um, so this would be the people whose businesses are supplying swag, uh, yeah. people who make the banners, people who set the stage, things yeah. like that. And their their yeah. their businesses just, I mean, I imagine just collapsed. Yep, right. Uh, when you're delivering a tangible product, good service. 
uh, and that, that all goes away. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, some, some, like there's this one vendor that we're using that pivoted to doing kind of like production broadcast and live streaming. Right. So they used to do the in-person stuff, but then, yeah. So there were some people that were able to figure out how to pivot, right. Like, like my team and I figured it out, but a lot of people couldn't, right. If, if you, if you have a storefront that sells goods and then no one's walking down the street, um, how do you pivot? So yeah, a lot of industries have been disrupted. Um, a lot of like, you were talking about like rem- people adopting remote work. So I think the pandemic definitely accelerated a lot of trends. Um, and it also, and, but it also like significantly changed a lot of industries as well. Yeah. And we're still, there's certain things where the fallout is still to be experienced, yeah. particularly with sort of city centers, for example. I mean, New York is a, an example that the whole world is watching, what's right? Gonna ha- yeah. What's going to happen to all of those office buildings, right? Like, I mean, so you know, some, some companies are like, yep, time to come back. But there's some that realize like, oh, do we need this expensive office and, and, and flat iron or um, yeah, in Times Square, right? When you have no tourists, what happened to all of those businesses? Yeah, it's, we didn't, it we was didn't weird. Tourism, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. I, I felt like I was living in uh, Will Smith's movie with I Am Legend. Like I was walking on, man, I was riding a city bike down middle main streets, no cars, no people. Like I had um, one of the busiest cities in the world to see just empty. It's yeah. And um, it's so, it's so hard to stay for me to stay focused because I'm not an expert in your industry and it's, it's got so many dimensions to it. But I guess one, one high level question I wanted to ask you is um, do you think large scale in-person conferences are going to come back? <sighs> this is my theory. Um, and uh, sorry if you can hear ambulances. There's something oh, that's, going on today. That's, that's fine. <laughs> Hello, New York. Um, can you hear that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's okay. It's part of the charm of podcasts okay. having okay, a okay. bit of stuff. <laughs> um, so large scale. This is my theory. Um, I think we discovered the impact and accessibility that a virtual event has, you know, so last year, our programs, we were supposed to have six to 8,000 people at um, our large scale conferences around the world. Um, Instead, we did two virtual conferences that had 25,000 attendees, right? And, and all of a sudden, and from a hundred different countries. So all of a sudden, this conference that like, if your employer doesn't pay for it, or if you, you know, it's expensive to go to a conference, uh, that the ticket is expensive, flights, hotel, food, you know, leaving your family for that many d- days. So we definitely learned that there's a really big benefit, um, of virtual, right. It makes it more accessible. Um, you reach a larger audience. So I don't think that's going to go away. Um, I, I personally don't like, I, I, I'm not going to do large scale, right? The pandemic isn't over. The, the complexity of trying to organize an in-person during, during the pandemic, even next year, right? COVID, just because the U.S. is figuring out vaccine rollout, you also have people that, are, that don't want the vaccine. And then look at what's happening in Europe, right? Like they, uh, they pause AstraZeneca. Um, they don't have enough supplies for all of the, the countries in the EU. So I just, we're in this for a couple more years. And when you try to do large scale, right? Like, you know, a 10,000 or more, you book those venues years in advance. And you're like, can I take that risk? And can I safely bring that many people together? Right? Like, so for example, you know, I'm thinking about like, okay, COVID, right? What are the different COVID protocols you need to have in place to like safely bring people together? Do you need to do rapid testing? Um, Do you need to have like, um, healthcare, like emergency healthcare professionals on site? What's the sanitation measures? Do you have to do social distancing, right? So we always do these floor plans, um, you know, and I'm like, well, do you have to kind of get book larger spaces? Cause now you have to kind of figure out how to socially distance people. Um, what happens if someone tests positive, right? What happens if someone gets sick at your conference? What are the legal? So it's like the, the, the you know, the, uh, the things you have to think about are really, and, and event planners are good, right? We are so good at the logistics, but, it, but it's complex. Yeah. Including even the logistics of getting in and out of the building or an elevator. That's something I've yeah. sort of thought about too, in particular with like, you know, the idea of, you know, returning to the office and it's like, well, there's going to be a line around the block if you have to socially distance in any tall building because of limited elevator space. Yeah. Um, so even, even things like just getting in and out of a 
building would be really difficult to organize. And you could probably just do yeah. the math and figure out how many people you could actually have in and then get in and out and things like that. And it's just so such an incredible and challenge. We're not, we're not through this, right? Like there's new variants coming out. Um, we don't know how long the vaccine, right? Is it going to be like, do we have to do booster shots every six months or a year? So I think there's just so much unknown um, that I think trying to bring large scale back. I, I just don't think large scale conferences will come back for the next, you know, five years. And so your team facing this, uh, not only had to pivot, but, but did pivot. Um, and you did manage to put on, you said these very large events, like for 25,000 people worldwide, things like that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you wrote a whole book about it. Uh, but one of, the, one of the features I think you talk about to, to just hone in on one is that you realize that putting on live events like that, you're basically becoming TV producers. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really cool, right? Because I always, I, um, I, I think a lot about like creating experiences, right? And so when you do it in person, you, you think a lot about the attendee experience, right? What they see, what they smell, what they taste, right? What they hear. So when someone walks in, right, you have registration, right? With, with people greeting you, you go get a, co- a coffee, you say hi to a friend, you have comfortable seating, right? So I think a lot about the attendee experience. Um, and so for a virtual event, so there was a couple things. One, we really took a step back and we were like, what are our goals, right? Like, what does our community really need? And so what we found was um, people really need education, right? People really need um, like quality content. Because again, you know, there's new developers adopting HashiCorp tools. And so they, they, they just, they need help, right? Adopting, learning how to use them, things like that. And then it's also uh, our community comes to our conferences like for those genuine connections, right? So once we figured out, okay, these are the like education and connections with each other, we then were able to figure out, okay, let's design the experience based on that, right? And we took away a lot of kind of, you know, when you do an in-person, you have a large expo hall and you have like a partner event and you have the hallway track, you, like, you know, there's, there's 20 events within one event happening, but you're like, well, for a virtual experience, you don't need all of that, right? And I think that's one. And then two, I think being really empathetic to kind of people's kind of situation, right? Um, so, not ex- so not expecting that someone can sit at their desk for eight hours and listen to your conference, right? Like people have children at home, their pets need to go outside, they have work meetings, right? So I think you have to really understand a person's situation and then and design the experience. So for us, right? Our conference was just two days, but just three hours a day. Um, and we made the talks 20 minutes because we also found that on average, people have a 15 to 20 minute attention span. So, you know, uh, people wouldn't sit there for an hour and watch a talk. So, right, that they need to take their dog out or they need to help their, their child with a Zoom class. So we really tried to like take a step back and it's like, okay, why do they come to our conference? And then also understanding people's current situation, right? In the past, people would just like travel, right? And they would just be fully immersed in those couple of days. But now work isn't really giving them time off to attend a conference. And also like, if you have a child at home, like, you know, <laughs> they have needs, right? They're not in school, things like that. So I, I think um, the reason we were successful with our virtual conferences is we really took a step back and like thought about why our community comes and then, and then design the experience that way. And also um, being empathetic, right. To people's situations. And one feature of designing a, a virtual event, I gather, is that it's a minute to minute thing. You have to, you know, in the same way that Second you might have, set, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the same way that you might have mapped out, the, and I, I'm just sort of guessing here, right? But in the same way that you would have had to th- mentally have a map of the space and know where everything is, you need to do that temporally for a minute to minute event because for a streaming event, because like, for example, uh, I think we've all had this experience at conferences where the music goes on and there's nobody on the stage and, and that's fine. You look at your phone, but if you're sitting or standing in front of your screen, I mean, let's say it's, let's say it's Saturday night live. Right. And like, there's just an empty stage. You'd be like looking at your watch, like what's, what's wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I don't, you might, you might sit at a, sit at 
sit in a conference room and then have a chat with somebody. But if you're just in a room looking at a screen, there's something very different about gaps in time. And so you, you, I think that you, you design very interesting things like um, uh, moments of play, oh, yeah. as you call them, things like that. And I, I think one example I may have come across is... Um, while people are sort of waiting for everything to get going, let's say they, you know, uh, you might show a video, a cool video of like how to make a great pour over cup of coffee or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, it's kind of, you know, designing with empathy, you always go back to that. So the broadcast piece. So there's, there's a couple different components of a virtual event, right? Uh, there's like kind of the broadcast production piece. And then there's also the platform, right? So the platform is kind of your, your virtual, like your, event venue, virtual event venue. Um, and for the broadcast, the, the run of show, and it's like second by second is so important, right? Cause you, you're, you know, you're watching a TV show and then if it goes blank for a couple minutes, you're like, Oh, what happened? Right. So for us, we have pretty much a minute by minute, second by second run of show of like, okay, now, you know, this lower third comes on to introduce the speaker and then this song comes on and then now we play this talk and now the MCs come on. Yeah, so we really last year learned how to be TV broadcasters. Like we were running HashCorp TV, which was really cool. So there's that. And then again, for us, we're like, okay, you don't have people's attention span constantly. Right. It's not like for three hours, someone's sitting there. So we would have, you know, 20 minute talks and uh, like, like condensed, like high content. And then we would have more passive content, uh, which I refer to as moments of play. Right. So they would be kind of like live coding or um, yeah, how to make the perfect pour over or just a really cool kind of visual visual and music right so it would kind of be on passive so if you're like okay i'm gonna go take my dog out or i'm gonna go make myself a cup of coffee right so it's like we call these kind of moments of play and these were just kind of more passive that you could just you didn't have to like be fully engaged in the conference and um one thing that physical uh events have is green rooms where you sort of like (laughs) get people queued up and each person might like you know might have some assistant who's there to say hey you know it's going to, you're going to, we're planning on, you're going to go on in half an hour. You try and calm them down. You try and give them a little bit of instruction. There's going to be this to your left and this to your right. You're going to want to sit down in the red chair, not the blue chair, you know, things like that. And so you actually have to, in, in addition to like, you know, thinking about it from the perspective of the attendee, you also have to think about running a digital event from the perspective of the, as it were, performers, um, the people yeah. who are going to be giving the talks. And so does that mean that like, and just to get into the details of a bit, does that mean that like each person has an assistant in a kind of the, the, like Zoom breakout room and it's like, okay, you're going on in five minutes, you know? Yeah, it, it was interesting because it's like, Normally, right, when you do a TV show, you have like a production crew and your like your your speakers and your host and everyone's in the same studio, right? But we had to figure out how to create a a TV show where we're all remote, <laughs> which is nutty. <laughs> um, so a, a couple different things. So we definitely so we would send all of the speakers equipment right mics and lighting and uh it's so it's so crazy because we would also do like exper- environmental checks so we did this for all speakers where we would jump on a call and we would kind of walk around their apartment or their house and help them find a space right that had the right lighting uh wasn't too right uh so, th- so that's one uh for our founders and our ceo i would you know i i, I I had art made or I would send plants or something. So it's like, it's crazy. Cause now you're like through zoom. I'm like, okay, uh, what's your background? Right. So it's like, normally you could control that in a studio on a stage, but for these speakers, right. We had to use their homes as the, as the studio, which is really funny. And two speaking virtually is tough, right? You don't have feedback from the audience. Where do you look? Right. So it, it took a lot of coaching as well with the speakers of like, how to still be engaging, right? Where to look and how to give a great talk when you don't have the audience reacting to what you're saying. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. I'm sorry I was <laughs> laughing, but a friend of mine, I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with Rate My Room, the Twitter, the Twitter feed. Uh, somebody- No, but I- yeah, somebody has been basically like, they'll, they'll take a screenshot of somebody doing an interview and then they'll rate the room, uh, you know, and a friend of mine ended up like with like two out of 10 or something like that. It looked like a hostage video. He was on some British newscast or something like that. And his, his, his Australian dad or uh, uncle or someone said that it looked, I'm not going to do the accent, but you know, it looks like yeah. 
outdoor dunny, you know. Um, and <laughs> oh, that's so, I need to follow. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really funny. Uh, and I should, I should mention, no, nobody's going to see it because we don't show the video, but you've, you've got a great room set up behind you with, with, a, you'll, you'll, you'll laugh when you see it because it's like, the guy would be like 10 out of 10, plants, painting, stack of books, you know, uh, I've got the laziest thing in the world, which is a screen just to hide everything. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I'm like, yeah, well, do I look like really... an intellectual? Do I look creative? You know, it's like, <laughs> you kind of, you know, here's my personality. Well, no, it's, but it's, it's actually, it's actually really important because as you say, people's attention spans work a certain way. Right. And like, you know, I'm sort of like, you know, I can look on the shelf behind you and be like, what's that, you know, while you're talking. Uh, and it, it's yeah. sort of, it's really important. So that, that must've been really challenging. So you had to send people lighting as well. Yeah. Lighting kind of decor element. Like it's in our budget. It's, it was, it was, it was a cool experience and cool thing to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, getting people, I mean, you know, it, it's just, it's just so interesting, like the, the difference between setting things up for people and getting people to set things up themselves, um, yeah, must yeah. in itself have been a huge learning curve. And then also like the host, right. The, the MCs, like they're, they're probably the most important piece of a broadcast, right. Cause they're the ones that like bring the energy and keep the flow. And so for them, right. You're like, how do you train? Cause there's two MCs. So you're like, how do you train them to interact with each other virtually? Cause they're not in the same space. How do you teach them? Cause they, they would have an ear. So we would be talking to them during the broadcast. So it takes a really special and set of skill set to be able to be an MC for a, like a virtual conference. <laughs> I actually ended up publishing a blog post of like your kind of different things that an MC skill set required to be able to get, be a good MC. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting um, in the sort of like world of people who do podcasts, which is everybody, of course, um, you know, sending, sending people audio equipment in particular is something that, that people, as soon as they've got the budget, they send every guest. Oh yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that, because it's, it's, it's the regularity of it. Like, you know, you know, the device that they're using now. And so you can help instruct them how to get it set up and things like that. And it that makes a difference, way. right? You have a really phenomenal microphone. I have like a logic tech camera. I have um, a, a light, right? Um, I, I, should, I don't know why I don't have a good a microphone, but we're home, right? We're recording, we're speaking on Zoom. So having the right equipment is really important. Yeah. And um, uh, do you actually, this, I, I don't, I'm ashamed. I don't know the answer to this, but do you sort of uh, have the events available to be watched again later now? Um, yes. So what you find with events is virtual events. It's not just a moment in time right? Like it, it's something that can be consumed later, later on, right? So the way we actually, we're a bit crazy in this way, we did building our own platform, right? I, I did a research on a bunch of different platforms out there. And at the time it didn't really fit our needs. So we designed a platform that's like, oh, hey, you can kind of log in and create your profile. And we already had kind of like great, like one-on-one tutorials and content there. Then we did like some workshops and then like we did the conference but then afterward right we also had the video on demand so we kind of we kept the platform open for a month so it's like either you join us live right which is great or you can watch the watch the content later and um yeah that that's one of the things that i find so fascinating about you know digital digital events and the ability to yeah. easily record things including including zoom calls now right like you know you can record a meeting a work just a simple work meeting and people can watch it later uh and it's so great. Yeah. And so, it, and, and that just reminds me of things like, you know, when, when will one sort of refrain one hears is when will things go back to normal? And it's like, well, do you really want to go back to a world where if you missed the meeting, you couldn't, you couldn't see what happened. Um, yeah. Do you really want to go back yeah. to a world where you have to go to an airport, wait for two hours, get on a flight, you know, and, and do all that and miss your family and miss your dog or, or what have you to attend an event that you could have watched a recording of. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, we'll, we're never going to go back to normal. Um, but I'm really curious how much this has changed human behavior. Yeah, 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 me too, me too. Um, so just before we move on to the next part of the interview, um, I wanted to ask you a kind of, hopefully kind of fun question, but um, what's the funniest, and this is totally random, but like what's the funniest kind of live blooper you've had during run of show, either, either for live or, or digital events that you can, you can think of? We, um, it, it was during our second virtual event. And again, like I said, we have a like second by second run of show. We actually have like kind of like a master control room. And it was during one of our founders keynote. So 80% of our content is pre-recorded. Um, but like 
we kind of rethought what live meant, right? So our MCs are live, the sphere Q and A's are live, the chat, right? The different community engagement features are live. Um, so it was, it was during the keynote and just for a split second, the MC somehow appeared on screen and he was just like drinking like a, a Gatorade or something, right? And, it, and then it went away. And none of us can figure out how this happened, right? Like the, our production company was like, looked really into it but then someone at, at work made a gif of it and now it's just become this really funny thing and and, and uh, one of the mcs he's hilarious right he kind of looks like aquaman has this long hair goes to Bernie man he's just a great guy but like it was just such a you know it was a really serious kind of i think as our founder was like about to announce a new new product and then all of a sudden here's you know just jake drinking some gatorade on screen but you know i think it's just it's okay, <laughs> but it, it's, it was a funny experience that we still now have a gift of. That, that's really great. That's really great. I'm glad, I'm glad all he was doing was taking a drink. Um, uh, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. It we, yeah, well, when it comes to like new behaviors that we may all be learning, it's like one of the old professional behaviors you learned was, you know, never, ever, ever send an email that you wouldn't want the whole world to see. And if you're in front of your camera and it's not covered, never, ever, ever do anything <laughs> ever that you wouldn't want recorded as a gift yeah. and being replayed yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just, just be very careful. Um, yep. uh, well, thank you very much for that. And so I just moving on to the last part of the interview where we, where we talk about your book. So, uh, what was the, uh, inspiration for the book? How did it, how did it come about? I mean, you know, in the midst of all these other things that you were doing, you and you and you decided to, to do this project. Yeah. I, I don't know how I got the energy last year. I think, um, writing a book is such an undertaking. And I think I was just, I had just finished our second program and I sent you a text and I was like, we should write a book. And Ollie was like, okay. And it was just, I, I have these, like, I, I get really inspired in the morning. I go on these like morning walks where I'm usually like listening to a podcast and I'm kind of like in Manhattan looking up. And I was like, we should publish, we should write about the work we did. <laughs> so I, I, I texted you cause he's, he's, he's a phenomenal writer. He's written a lot of like technical books before. And I've never written a book. I actually like, I actually say I'm not a good writer. Like I never in my life did I think I would write a book of, you know, like my parents, you know, didn't speak English very well. I'm like, I speak, you know, multiple languages. So it's like, I, I never became a great writer. So having, having the support of someone that is, and that's written books before. Um, Cause for me, I'm like, like, I, I always love bringing teams together. I'm like, there's only so much that one person can accomplish, but if you have the right team in place, it's so much better. So that's why I decided uh, to work with you. And it, and it was great um, having someone to like collaborate with and, and kind of keep you accountable. And co-authoring is, it, is its own particular challenge. Um, how did you do it? Did, did one person write something and the other one then, did you, did you just split up? Like I'll do chapter one, you'll do chapter two. How did you organize yeah. that? Yeah, that was great. So um, uh, we wrote up an outline, right? And so we're like, okay, so we already knew from the beginning, we're like, okay, we want to talk about virtual events. Um, and then, so, and then the outline just started being kind of a step-by-step guide, right? How to do branding, how to do speaker onboarding, community building, things like that. And then, uh, yeah. And then, so we took on chapters, um, that we have more experience in, right? So I, I, I wrote the intro or I wrote the design or I wrote the writing and art. So I took chapters that like I had more experience with, um, but it ended up being about 50, 50, like it ended up being a really good split. And, and so it's like, we would both kind of do these kind of writings. Actually, I, yes, yeah, so it's like we would do these writing sprints and then it's like, okay, I finished this chapter and then like he would go in and edit it and, and make sure there's a unified tone of voice. And then I would, you know, then he would finish a chapter and then I would actually remove a lot of it, right? Cause he's a very <laughs> lengthy writer and I'm, I'm kind of more just short into the point. So we had this really good kind of like back and forth cadence, but it, it felt like a really, beautiful partnership. Yeah. That's, yeah, the, right. <laughs> that's really great. Yeah. Have people, people having kind of offsetting, uh, uh, sort of instincts or habits can actually be really good for teamwork as well. Right. Like you're <laughs> too short, you're too long. Let's, let's, let's view each other's shortcomings with, with the other perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we wrote, so it was about over three months that, that we ended up writing the book. Um, and it was tough, right? It was, you know, again, you have life stuff and family stuff and work stuff. Um, and, but I, so I'm obsessed with, um, Cal Newport and anything he, he has to say. 
So um, he wrote a book. Are you familiar with Cal Newport and his book Deep Work? Only through uh, Ezra Klein interviews. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I applied his methodology of of deep work. So I ended up, um, I would go and write at like um, a coffee shop. And so I would only write as long as my laptop lasted, which was three and a half hours. So I would close Slack. I wouldn't have my phone on me. I wouldn't have iMessage. And all I would do is just write. And I, and I tried to remove any, and sometimes it would just be kind of editing something. And sometimes it would just be kind of getting everything out of my brain and applying this kind of deep work methodology really, really helped. Right. Cause he talks a lot about um, how in today's world, we're so distracted, right. All of a sudden like email and you get this ping. And so you get this like, okay, so I'm writing, I am doing this research project or I'm writing my book. And then all of a sudden I check email and then you kind of completely get yourself out of the zone and you have what he calls this like cognitive dissonance. Well, now you're trying to get back to it, but you're like, well, you're still thinking about that email and how to respond to that email. So. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've actually, I've actually heard another uh, interviewed someone else once who, who had the same thing, which is like laptop away from all my other stuff, turn everything off and go until it, and go until it powers down. Uh, there, there's something I find just so interesting about that idea that like, you're not thinking about the particular time, you're not looking at the clock, but you do still have, kind of an end yeah. point that you know is going to come. So you don't need to think about it. So it was that. And then I also, cause I think, you know, your, your laptop also reminds you of work. And I was like, I don't want this writing experience to feel like work. So I actually, what I did is I, um, I had just some, uh, uh, post, what are these like, um, three by five, like little cards. And so I wrote each, so I, I just, for a couple days, I wrote, all these postcards out, right? Each chapter. And then on it, I, I was like, these are the different points I want, right? So for a moment, I kind of like took myself out of the laptop and I just kind of like made it kind of this more like meditative, creative thing of like, okay, what, what do I want each chapter? And that also kind of helped me move the different chapters around as well. Um, so that was another little thing that worked well for me. Yeah. I'm personally a big outliner. I like to have everything thought through in advance, usually, usually when I write and it's not, it's not, it's not like some people think where it's like, well, now I'm just sort of like, you know, banging out a script or something like that. Once I've got the outline there, you still change it. But you know, some people just like to kind of dive in and other people like to know, know where they're going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, different styles. Um, uh, so uh, you uh, used our, on, on LeanPub, you used our bring your own book writing mode, which is the one where you, you actually create your own ebook files yourself. You don't use one of LeanPub's writing flows. A uh, lot this is very popular writing mode um, uh, because it, it lets authors do whatever, use whatever tools they like to create their, their book files. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you and you chose to create your, uh, I believe you've got um, EPUB and PDF files. Yeah. Um, it's so, it's so funny. Cause I really thought writing the book would be the biggest challenge <laughs> and the hardest undertaking. Um, but really, which I should have known cause I'm a marketer, the, the marketing and distribution and promotion and messaging and design. Like, you, you know, when you're like, let's write a book, you're like, okay. And then the, that should be the hard part. Then all of a sudden we have this book, but we're like, well, what should we title it? Wait, how are we going to distribute it? Um, who's going to design it, right? Like, I'm like, if we, li- if we are uh, a team that talks about experiences and design, we, ha- we have to like think about that as well. Um, and I think that was like the most surprising and, and like learning for me as well of like, oh, how do I now message and market and design this thing? Yeah, that's that's one of the really big challenges. And it's it's in a way, I think it's kind of like it's kind of good to not know about them while you're writing. <laughs> so you don't get distracted. You're right. You know? uh, yeah, it's like, oh, like, OK, we have. Oh, well, what's the name of it? Like what? OK, and then do we like do we like, like do a website or it's a URL, right? Like how, how do you message this thing? Right. Cause like we knew our, our network, like we knew, right. Um, our friends or friends of friend or at, at HashiCorp, they would buy it. But it's like, once you get out of your network, it's like, well, who are we? And what, like, why should someone buy this book? And um, did you, did you, you know, write in word and then output the PDF that way or. Yeah. So um, for the design of it. So um I ended up hiring a designer. Oh, uh, to, yeah. So I ended up hiring a designer um, who specializes in print, and and um, and then has done like she's done book designs before. But I think it was so interesting working with her because designing for EPUB 
is extremely challenging. You're like, it was, it was crazy, right? The amount of different formats and for Kindle, like you can't set the font, right? Cause Kindle uh, moves it around based on what, um, what fonts people are choosing, or there's also like, um, if someone is dyslexic, they have a certain font that they use. So it just, you know, she would be designing it and then, and then watch it break on these different e-readers. So she was like, this was definitely a learning experience for me. Um, but again, she's, she's a good friend of mine, but yeah, it's also right. You're like, let's write a book. And then you're like, Oh, I have to buy a domain name. Oh, I have to figure out distribution. Oh, I have to pay someone to design it. So it, it like, we haven't done a physical book. Cause again, you're like, I'm doing this as kind of a side project. And you're like, you, you don't realize all the different costs associated to it as well. Um, or having to register. Like if you do a printed book, the, the IB, IBAN number that you have to ISBN. purchase every year. ISBN. Yes. Thank you. So it's like these things, you know, let's write a book. And you're like, I didn't know all these things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it can be, I mean, it, it, it can be as simple as, you know, you know, taking it easy on all the formatting or as hard as taking it very seriously, uh, which, you know, obviously, you know, looks matter and, and being accessible and things like that are really important. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. I mean, you know, book design is a whole podcast unto itself. Uh, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, but I, I really like that you brought up some of the interesting challenges of ebook design, right? Because people can view them on different readers. People yep. will, will, you know, it's empowering from one perspective to be able to choose your font from the book designer's perspective. That's just like, well, you just blew up everything, <laughs> everything I, everything I've trained to do. Right. Because yeah. if someone can control the font, they basically, they're in control of the, des- the, the quote unquote design. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly challenging. And then, yeah, of course, print brings all its its own costs and, and things like that as well. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. That's that's we leave this part to the end. So for the, the sort of people who are interested in writing processes can can listen to it. But it's it's really it's really great to hear people tell that story because there'll be people listening who are just at the beginning or just at the end of their own of their own process and uh, hearing other people talk about what they went through uh, can, be yeah. really, can be really helpful. Um, it's so, it's so funny. Cause um, you know, our, our designer, she's like, okay, here are different like layouts. Um, right. The, how we do like the, the chapter titles, we have like little nuggets, right. Little things. So she's like, these are how these look and this is how the, we pick the font. Right. Um, and it's, and then it just kind of all got like thrown out the window once you're like, okay, now I'm designing for Eve. Okay. All these formats and things we picked, right. Or even fonts. You're like, just make it look good, please. <laughs> yeah. Lots um, to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, uh, the last question I always ask on the podcast, if the guest is a lean pub author is um, if there was one magical feature we could build for you or one really annoying problem we could fix for you. Is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's such a great, platform right it makes publishing books accessible like where would i find a publisher like who would even be interested in in you know publishing something that's so kind of niche and and you know won't ever get you know be a new york times best-selling author uh best-selling book um so i'm super grateful that like lean pub exists right for us you know, I think we ended up spending about, you know, thousand to $1,500, right. From the design and the domain and, and different things, different, uh, we ended up, um, hiring a video producer to create a video, right. Like a little promo video. Um, but I, I really loved that lean pub just made it so easy for us to upload. I also love that, like you could do a co-author, right. I didn't see that, um, available anywhere else. So it's really easy for us to just like, there's a co-author and we can split, you know, split the, the net profits evenly and it goes into PayPal. So there's just so many things that were just like really easy. I also really love, like, I, I probably didn't need to do a website, right? Like the way the, the, the page is designed is so nice. Like it, it, all of the information that we have on our website actually lives on our like lean pub page. Right. So I think I've, if I would do it all over again, I, I would have just, you know, used lean pub entirely and not had my own website. Um, yeah. So I, I have no feedback. I was really happy with it. It was really easy. It's, it's so funny. Cause I was, I was speaking at an event yesterday and, um, and I was like, Oh my God, like, I'm like, Oh, I should like promote my book. And so I was like, while I was speaking, I like quickly went to lean pub, made a coupon, had a link and then posted it in there. Um, and it was just like, you know, two seconds and then, you know, 10 people bought, bought my book at a discounted rate. So I, I love, yeah, I really love it. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, if, you, if you ever think, if you ever have a complaint or, or, or a feature that you think of, please just send me an email and, and, and let me know. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for that. That that's um, some of the things that we kind of take for granted are actually not really available on other self-publishing platforms, yeah. like, like easily adding a co-author and doing an automatic royalty split with them. Uh, making That making was coupons. huge. Yeah. Making, making coupons so that you can just give, and like you can set the number of uses so you can set it to one. So it's a single use coupon link. Um, things like that huge. are really, yeah, really good for promoting. So anyone listening, you know, those, those ways of promoting things and those ways of working with other people and automating them really, really help. Cause like, like you said, you know, there's so many challenges beyond writing and that's one of our goals is to try and do as much as we can to take that work away that the obligation to do kinds of certain kinds of work away from you so you can focus on writing and uh and promoting in ways that you're comfortable with or, or enjoy promoting your work yeah you really accomplished that like the, the publishing piece was you you made it the, the easiest piece of the whole writing a book journey well, that's great to hear. Um, <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, so the book, uh, for those listening, in case you've forgotten in the last hour, is uh, Digital First Events, <laughs> Your Step-by-Step Guide to Building Engaging Community Experiences. It is a very good book. Uh, it, it's um, empathetic to the challenge that you face, if, and particularly in this time, if you have to pivot from event planning from physical to digital. And I wanted to say that like, it's really good on the details. Um, it's not, it's, it's, like you will, if, if this is a challenge that you're facing, this book really will, will help you and was designed specifically for that purpose. So uh, in any case, uh, thank you, Yana, very much for uh, sharing your story uh, and for writing your book and for using LeanPub as the platform to publish it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.